On the 29th of June 2022, world leaders gathered in Madrid to discuss the future direction of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. I was at the event and a lot has happened over the last few days. You're listening to Beyond the Headlines. I'm Mina El-Durubi, and this week we're talking about the future of NATO. Michael Stevens is an associate fellow from the Rusi Institute, and we'll be discussing some of the topics brought up during the summit. So, Mike, what do you think are the biggest takeaways from the NATO summit this week? Thanks so much, Mina. And yes, it's been quite a summit, uh, possibly the single most important summit I can remember um, in my lifetime. And quite unprecedented in terms of the commitments that have been made. Um, What you're talking about is a massive ramp up of NATO power and then an expansion of its forces really across all of NATO territory. Um, We're going to go and see as much as eight times uh, the number of troops at high readiness from 40,000 to 300,000. That is a big increase. Um, A number of deployments of naval destroyers uh, increasing from four to six. Um, and two more squadrons of F-35 jets stationed in the UK, um, as well as some additional air defence in the southern parts of of Italy and also in Germany. So there's really been a big statement made um, by NATO. They're not going to be messed around. The time to step up to the plate is now. And uh, the commitments to Ukraine, but also not to escalate with Russia beyond what is necessary, I think are the biggest takeaways. Turkey has finally given the green light for Finland and Sweden to join NATO. What brought this about? So in my mind, President Erdogan realized that there could be a discussion about uh, potential NATO expansion. Um, And his domestic concerns were really the cards he had to play and he put on the table. And so he made it clear to the Finns and the Swedes who were hosting uh, a number of PKK uh, uh, members. Uh, PKK is a banned Kurdish uh, organization in Turkey, as well as uh, FETO, which is uh, another domestic organization in Turkey that is banned. Um, And these were concerns that he wanted addressed. And if they were not addressed by Finland and Sweden, uh, then he was not going to accede to to their expansion. And so he's played quite a smart game. Uh, The Turks have come away from the trilateral discussion with Finland and Sweden, saying that they are happy with the commitments that have been made. They feel that they've got what they wanted uh, and that at some point down the line, uh, some of these uh, wanted members of the PKK and uh, FETO will be most likely extradited to Turkey uh, to face charges. So he's got what he wanted on the domestic front. Finland and Sweden have got what they wanted on the international stage and also in terms of their collective defence. And so everybody's come away happy. But make no mistake, I think President Erdogan saw an opportunity. He took that opportunity and uh, he's come away um, with a scenario where I think everybody feels that they've gained something. Also, as Russia has naturally been such a big focus this week, do you think there might have been any significant steps to manage the Ukraine crisis? That's a really good question. Um, I mean, clearly the, the, the war continues uh, and that doesn't really show any signs of stopping. So in terms of management of the crisis, there is a domestic element inside Ukraine that NATO can't do much uh, about. Uh, and if President Putin wants to continue, um, particularly the offensives in the east of the country, then um, I, I'm not sure that this summit would uh, change his thinking on that. I think what it does do 
is it provides reassurances to smaller countries. And here I'm thinking particularly the Baltics, Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, um, that NATO will be there for them no matter what happens. Uh, and that President Putin should not think about expanding his influence uh, inside those territories, which are, of course, far, far smaller than Russia uh, and would be not able uh, to resist any type of uh, attempt or, or destabilization efforts. So I think what NATO has done is it's, as you know, we've said before, just put a line in the sand and say, you have caused this reaction and now you need to uh, understand the new situation as it is on the ground. We're making renewed commitments. We're standing by those commitments and we want to see some sort of recognition uh, of NATO territory uh, as territory that is not uh, to be trifled with or messed with by Russia. Um, and I guess we'll find out what the responses to that are going to be. Certainly, Russia has indicated that it's not against expansion, but it doesn't want to see expansion of NATO used for military purposes. What that means is, is obviously debatable. The Russian president, Vladimir Putin, has said that he does not have any issues with Finland and Sweden joining NATO as long as there is not a NATO presence. Mike, can you tell us a bit more about his perspective? Well, I think certainly from the Russian perspective, there's this feeling that they are effectively surrounded. Um, that ever since NATO expanded you know, eastwards, um, the Russians have felt increasingly that their sphere of influence, if you like, was under threat. Uh, Kaliningrad, which is um, you know, uh, an exclave of, of Russia in continental Europe, um, was surrounded effectively on all sides by uh, NATO allies, uh, and that produced a deep level of insecurity uh, among Russia, and particularly, of course, uh, Vladimir Putin, in some respects, launched this war because he was worried that NATO would expand into Ukraine, and that would cause uh, a forward operating base to be right on the southwestern border of Russia. Now, what Putin doesn't want is another forward operating base on the northwestern side of Russia. And so if he can get some reassurances that the Finns and the Swedes won't use that territory um, as a launching pad for NATO operations into Russia, uh, then I think he'd be satisfied. But ultimately, Mina, there's not much he can do to stop this. Uh, what's he going to do, invade? Uh, there's no real option there for him. So um, I suspect that the, the Russian calculation has been to say, OK, well, you know, we, we accept that the reality is what it is. But we have security concerns that we would like uh, to be recognized. Now, whether those are then adhered to or not is, is another matter. I, I, I think there's a lot more in that conversation left to run. It seems like there's been a scramble to get Sweden and Finland to join NATO since the war in Ukraine started. What are your thoughts about this? Well, it depends what side of the of the uh, equation you look at. So, you know, those who were sort of more sympathetic to Vladimir Putin's view of the world would say that this was always what NATO had planned. NATO is just an expansive organization um, that is there to crush Russian aspirations, cr Russian interests, etc. And it keeps on ever expanding and ignoring the concerns of, of Moscow. Uh, what the NATO states would say, particularly uh, Baltic states, but also uh, of course, now uh, Sweden and Finland as well, you brought this on yourself. You have created a scenario where we feel so insecure that we are so worried about the threat that you pose because you are, in our view, an aggressive expansionist uh, nation that invades sovereign territory of other countries. 
you have a history of doing this. And so we're doing what we need to do to protect ourselves and we're not going to apologize for it. And that's certainly been the line that uh, Finland and Sweden have taken. And, you know, this debate about NATO expansion in Finland and Sweden has been uh, long on the table. It was always assumed that both would come in at the same time, but there needed to be a really strong reason to do it. And now I think that with um, the course of events has taken place over the last five months, uh, that reason uh, has been seen as sufficient. So, yes, there has been a rush, but I think that the sense of threat felt by uh, countries bordering Russia is so severe that that's uh, the only option that they see as, as, as viable to protect themselves. Moving on to the Middle East, Syria has recently recognized two regions of Ukraine. What are the reasons behind this? So I think Bashar al-Assad is, is in a way trying to show solidarity with Vladimir Putin. Clearly, um, you know, most of your listeners will know that Russia has backed President Bashar al-Assad since 2011, come hell or high water. And of course, since 2015, basically fought the war on Syria's behalf. Uh, and effectively won that war for the Syrian government. So this, I, I, I suspect, was a, a sort of quid pro quo of saying, hey, we, we align with our friends, our friends align with us. Um, does it make any difference in Ukraine? No, uh, I don't see there being any strategic or tactical um, change as a result of that. But it certainly is uh, a way of Russia's allies just saying, hey, you know, we're with you at a time of need. Uh, we support your uh, diplomatic, political, and military aspirations, um, and that is our way of of saying that uh, you know we are allies. Uh, as I said, the impact of it is is relatively small, but um, nevertheless, I think there was a feeling that it needed to be said. Do you think that there might be a solution to ending the war soon? That is a really tough question. I suspect that there is not a solution. Um, if the conflict in uh, the east around Donbass is, you know, where things are headed. This is going to take a long, long time to fix. Uh, it is attritional. It's slow. A lot of soldiers are dying on both sides now. Um, it's creating an incredible amount of devastation. And I can't really see a political condition whereby Zelensky could make peace with Russia while they're in any part of what he regards as Ukrainian territory. Now, the issue about the Crimea is debatable. I, I'm not quite sure if that would be on the table, but currently any of the territory which has been taken this year, if that remains in Russian hands, I, I cannot see Zelensky uh, being in a position where he could, he could negotiate with Russia or make peace with Russia. I think that would be uh, unacceptable for the Ukrainian population. Uh, it would finish him politically. Um, and that's just not a position he wants to be in. It would be, and, and it is perceived in Ukraine as, as that would be rewarding Russia for its aggression, which of course, uh, most Ukrainians don't accept. Moving on to China, NATO's Secretary General said that China is not an adversary, but we must be clear-eyed about the serious challenges it represents. What are these challenges and how might NATO address them? I don't think that China poses a direct threat to NATO territory. Uh, there's nothing that China could do or is seeking to do that would have much of an impact on the you know, um, territorial integrity of NATO states. It, it's not looking to destabilize them, uh, and nor does it really have the logistical or military capabilities, at least yet, to do so. I think there are a couple of questions here, which is, of course, that you know China is just... Um, uh, launched its third aircraft carrier. 
uh, it's beginning to become a global player in defense and security in a way that it wasn't even 10 years ago. Um, it has incredibly aggressive cybersecurity uh, capabilities, and it's certainly very active in areas around the Mediterranean basin, which back onto uh, NATO territory, if you like. So it's there and thereabouts, and there are economic interests that the Chinese pursue uh, with NATO allies uh, in terms of port infrastructure and logistics infrastructure that give China a lot of influence um, outside of the military sphere, um, particularly in the sort of communications and technological sphere. And I think that's something that NATO allies are concerned about, particularly as it pertains to cyber threats, stealing of technology, particularly advanced weapons technology, um, as we've seen uh, with uh, advanced fighter programs in the US. And so I think there are messages to be sent there about, look, we, we respect that the Chinese are a rising power, that they're extremely influential. We don't have a problem with them in terms of how our alliance was set out, but there are concerns. And we need to be able to stand by those concerns and be vigilant as to what may come in the future. It's not a threat uh, to China, but it is saying we're wary and you know, let's continue to be alert to the potential threats coming down the line. And finally, Mike, my final question, what kind of status or power does NATO have in the current world? To my mind, in terms of pure military assets, it's, it's by far and away the most powerful military alliance uh, that has ever existed. Uh, you're talking about a collection of extremely well-funded, well-armed states backed by the United States of America, um, three nuclear uh, powers, United Kingdom, uh, France, and the US. Um, that is a serious collection of, of countries with a lot of deployable military assets um, and a lot of economic uh, power in the international sphere. Uh, so NATO is quite unlike any other military alliance I've seen. Um, and it's been quite enduring. And it looks to me, Mina, that it has been given its rationale once again. This is probably the strongest moment that NATO has been in, um, really, since the end of the Cold War. So right now, I would say it is the ascendant military alliance. Obviously, you can't get everything you want through military means. Uh, you know, the world is suffering from global food shortages, inflation, cost of living crises. You know, NATO can't solve any of those problems. What it can do is mitigate the insecurity that comes from that. And in an era where states are beginning to arm wrestle with states uh, once again, uh, NATO, I think, has a renewed purpose and uh, a renewed mission. That's it for Beyond the Headlines today. Thank you for listening. Please remember to subscribe so you can get the latest episodes. And if you have the time, we'd really appreciate a review. Thanks this week to our special guest, Michael Stevens.